0: Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. I'm going to ask you a most personal question. When you think back on all your romantic intentions over the years, are you able to neatly distinguish whether the feeling that gripped you was lust or love? Today, we'll consider a few poems that deal with powerful emotional responses to another person. I will leave it to you to decide which category the poem best fits, lust or love. Sometimes it seems ambiguous. We'll start with a poem set in a location where I bet many of my listeners have spent some time. Ellen Bass's poem, Gate C-22, takes us to Portland Airport's arrival gate. The poem details an anonymous couple who have just reunited. The couple's public display of affection absorbs the attention of the speaker and others gathered at the gate. She and other commuters could not turn away. This is Ellen Bass's poem, Gate C-22. At Gate C-22 in the Portland Airport, a man in a broadband leather hat kissed a woman arriving from Orange County. They kissed and kissed and kissed. Long after the other passengers clicked the handles of their carry-ons and wheeled briskly toward short-term parking, the couple stood there, arms wrapped around each other, like he'd just staggered off the boat at Ellis Island. Like she'd been released at last from ICU, snapped out of a coma, survived the bone cancer, made it down from Annapurna in only the clothes she was wearing. Neither of them was young. His beard was gray. She carried a few extra pounds you could imagine. Her saying she had to lose. But they kissed lavish kisses like the ocean in the early morning, the way it gathers and swells, sucking each rock under, swallowing it again and again. We were all watching passengers waiting for the delayed flight to San Jose, the stewardesses, the pilots the aproned woman icing Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses. We couldn't look away. We could taste the kisses crushed in our mouths. But the best part was his face. When he drew back and looked at her, his smile soft with wonder, almost as though he were a mother still open from giving birth, as your mother must have looked at you, no matter what happened after, if she beat you, or left you, or you're lonely now. You once lay there, the vernix not yet wiped off, and someone gazed at you as if you were the first sunrise seen from the earth. The whole wing of the airport hushed. All of us, trying to slip into that woman's middle-aged body, her plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless blouse, glasses, little gold hoop earrings, tilting our heads up. That's Ellen Bass's poem, Gate C-22. People in lust kiss, People in love kiss. Do you think people feeling both these types of desire kiss the same way? Poets have been writing about this topic for at least three millennia. Think of the opening line to the Old Testament's Song of Songs in which the bride says, May he smother me with kisses. Your love is more fragrant than wine. So how does a poet avoid clichés when describing a kiss? How might she slap us awake? Ellen Bass says of this reunited couple in the airport, They kissed lavish kisses like the ocean in the early morning, the way it gathers and swells, sucking each rock under, swallowing it again and again. All those S's. Kissed, lavish, gathers, swells, sucking, swallowing suggest the delirious extended moment this couple enjoys. It makes you blush just to hear it. But note that in homage to the duration of this kiss, the speaker continues in the very next sentence with the repetition of this sinuous S sound. We were all watching, passengers waiting for the delayed flight to San Jose, the stewardesses, the pilots, the aproned woman icing Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses. The kiss continues with this choice of words. Passengers, San Jose. Stewardesses, pilots, icing, Cinnabons, selling, sunglasses. The poem speaker presumes her out of the body experience was shared by all the gazing commuters. We could taste the kisses crushed in our mouths, the poem says, and then concludes this way The whole wing of the airport hushed, all of us trying to slip into that woman's middle-aged body, her plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless blouse, glasses, little gold hoop earrings, tilting our heads up. Is that a poem of lust or love? I'm not the judge here today. Ellen Bass's poem seems especially noteworthy because the speaker does not describe a personal relationship. She's an observer, a most empathetic observer. Frank O'Hara said he looked like a sissy truck driver with a crooked nose improperly set after it was broken in a schoolyard fight. Because of this boxer-like appearance, when he was in the Navy in World War II, his mates called him Butch until they realized his gay identity, and then he was called Butchie. O'Hara's poem, Having a Coke With You, responds exuberantly to the speaker's current object of desire. At the time he wrote this poem, frank o'hara worked at moma that is at the museum of modern art in new york city he worked in its international program promoting american artwork abroad thus he traveled extensively in the opening of the poem lists some of his destinations in spain and france none of these destinations compared to this new man whom he gushes over. He also rates the new man against the paintings and statues O'Hara would be familiar with from his work life. The poem is constructed with 25 lines, most of them long, and relies on minimal punctuation. That makes it a bit of a challenge to read aloud. But let's hear it. This is Frank O'Hara's poem, and the opening line is the same as the title. Having a Coke with you is even more fun than going to San Sebastian, Iran, Ande, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach on the Traversa de Gracia in Barcelona. Partly because in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier Saint Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you. Partly because of your love for yogurt. Partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches. Partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people and statuary. It's hard to believe, when I'm with you, that there can be anything as still, as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary, when right in front of it, in the warm New York four o'clock light, we are drifting back and forth between each other, like a tree breathing through its spectacles. And the portrait show seems to have no faces in it at all, just paint. You suddenly wonder why in the world anyone ever did them. I look at you and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world, except possibly the Polish rider, occasionally. And anyway, it's in the Frick, which, thank heavens, you haven't gone to yet, so we can go together for the first time. And the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism. Just as, at home, I never think of the nude descending a staircase, or, at a rehearsal, a single drawing of Leonardo or Michelangelo that used to wow me. And what good does all the research of the Impressionists do them when they never got the right person to stand near the tree when the sun sank, or for that matter, Morino Morini when he didn't pick the rider as carefully as the horse? It seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. That's Frank O'Hara's Having a Coke with You. I'm presuming the you of this poem is a new object of desire, They share secret smiles before people in statuary. Having a Coke with this man is better than visiting San Sebastian in the other four settings mentioned in the first line alone. But O'Hara's speaker won't express himself in traditional terms of love. Having a Coke with this man is even more fun than being sick to my stomach. Does O'Hara want to sound not so serious, not so heartfelt in this poem? Is there even one line about the object of desire's personality? We know he wears an orange shirt. We know he likes yogurt. I'm not faulting the poem, of course. Most of us have been there, gobsmacked by the appearance, certain, The appearance contains an appealing substance. And the poem is funny. The speaker would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world. That sounds like extravagant love language from the Renaissance. But then O'Hara undercuts his claim. I look at you, and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world, except, possibly, for the Polish rider occasionally in any way it's in the Frick, which thank heavens you haven't gone to yet so we can go together for the first time. Polish rider is a Rembrandt painting depicting a young man staring at the viewer while riding a white horse through an empty landscape. The speaker can dismiss Duchamp's new descending a staircase in all of futurism because of the fact his object of desire moves so beautifully. Compared to this man, the aesthetic value of drawings by Da Vinci and Michelangelo, the work of Impressionist painters, seemed diminished, as the poem's two final lines assert. It seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. The speaker leaves it to us to imagine how these extravagant claims were received. We don't get the response from the man identified as you in the title, having a Coke with you. Does he consider himself an object of lust or love? Edna St. Vincent Millay was a wildly popular American poet, as popular as a poet may be in our country, in the late 19-teens and 1920s. I'll read a sonnet by Edna St. Vincent Millay, that may give us pause as we decide if it's about lust or love. It's a two-sentence poem, one full stop after the first eight lines, the octet, the other at poem's end, after the sestet. In this sonnet, the speaker's involved in a relationship in the present. She knows it won't last, and effectively, dismisses the man as soon-to-be forgettable. This is Edna St. Vincent Millay's sonnet, I Shall Forget You Presently, My Dear. I shall forget you presently, my dear, so make the most of this, your little day, your little month, your little half-a-year, Ere I forget, or die, or move away, and we are done forever. By and by I shall forget you, as I said, but now, if you entreat me with your loveliest lie, I will protest you with my favorite vow. I would indeed that love were longer lived, and vows were not so brittle as they are, But so it is, and nature has contrived to struggle on without a break thus far. Whether or not we find what we are seeking is idle, biologically speaking. That's Edna St. Vincent Millay's sonnet I Shall Forget You Presently, My Dear. While many love poems by men Many lust poems by men boast of their multiple romantic partners. That's an unconventional strategy for a woman to take, especially 100 years ago. Malay's biographers attempt to tally the constant stream of her intimate relationships year after year. I wonder how many men thought This poem was about them. In the poem's opening lines, she thrice urges him to enjoy his little time with her and thrice declares she will forget the man and even self-consciously repeats herself. By and by, I shall forget you, as I said so it's mainly a poem of anticipation. Traditional love poems anticipate the emotions will grow deeper. That's not what we find in Malay. Soon the man's little time with her will end, and she will erase him from her mind. As for the present moment, she says, But now, if you entreat me with your loveliest lie... I will protest you with my favorite vow. What might her favorite vow be? Is she admitting she's just toying with this man? Then the ninth line, the start of the sestet, takes a sudden turn. I would indeed that love were longer lived and vows were not so brittle as they are. But so it is. Don't presume I'm personally responsible for conducting only short-term relationships, the speaker implies. Instead, she says, she's following her natural instincts and nature is indifferent to human emotions. Nature has contrived to struggle on without a break thus far. Whether or not we find what we are seeking is idle biologically speaking. Writing roughly a century ago, Malay recommends we revise our ideal notions of what love means. So far on this episode of Poems for Company, we've gone from Ellen Bass, who took us to the Portland airport to feast on a sensual reunion at gate C-22. Then to Frank O'Hare's speaker, comparing his current object of desire to various artworks. And then to Edna St. Vincent Millay, who asserts, well, it's our nature to avoid long-term attachments. With our last poem, we look over the shoulder of a young woman writing a letter to her husband. She expresses how her feelings for him transformed over time. The 20th century poet Ezra Pounds, The River Merchant's Wife, A Letter, imitates a poem by the 8th century Chinese poet Li Po. The speaker The river merchant's wife, knows herself in relation to her husband. She has known him since childhood. Theirs may very well be an arranged marriage. Now he's far away, and she writes him this letter. This is Ezra Pound's The River Merchant's Wife, a letter. While my hair was still cut straight across my forehead, I played about the front gate, pulling flowers. You came by on bamboo stilts, playing horse. You walked about my seat, playing with blue plums. And we went on living in the village of Chokan, Kan. Two small people, without dislike or suspicion, At fourteen, I married my lord, you. I never laughed, being bashful. Lowering my head, I looked at the wall. Called to a thousand times, I never looked back. At fifteen, I stopped scowling. I desired my dust to be mingled with yours forever and forever and forever. Why should I climb the lookout? At sixteen, you departed. You went into Far Kutowen, by the river of swirling eddies, and you have been gone five months. The monkeys make sorrowful noise overhead. You dragged your feet when you went out. By the gate now, The moss has grown, the different mosses, too deep to clear them away. The leaves fall early this autumn in wind. The paired butterflies are already yellow with August over the grass in the west garden. They hurt me. I grow older. If you are coming down through the narrows of the River Kiang, please let me know beforehand and I will come out to meet you as far as Chou Sa. That's Ezra Pound's poem, The River Merchant's Wife, A Letter. Something happened to this teenager in her first year of marriage. She had been joyless, and bashful but at fifteen i stopped scowling i desired my dust to be mingled with yours forever and forever and forever the paired butterflies hurt her she must wonder why are these winged creatures allowed to be with their mates and yet you my husband my lord, are so far away. That's another view of the indifference of nature toward humans that Edna St. Vincent Millay suggested. I grow older, this woman says. Well, she's only sixteen. But with her husband gone for five months, she must feel she's missed out on so much of what should have been a happy life. This woman, who defines herself by her marital role, she's the river merchant's wife, wants to rendezvous with her husband. If you are coming down through the narrows of the River Kiang, please let me know beforehand, and I will come out to meet you as far as Chofu Sa. That would be an upstream river journey of hundreds of miles from her village in the slow transportation days of the 8th century. Does she pledge to make that journey out of lust or out of love? Thank you for listening to Poems for Company today and thank you for joining me in this mutual attempt to determine if we can distinguish lust from love. If you go to kmun.org, you may click on the podcast tab to find this and other episodes as well as a list of all the poems read here. I strongly encourage readers of poetry, novels, or the newspaper to pause occasionally and read a passage aloud. That way, you animate your reading, help bring the words to life. Our show's theme music is Philip Ahlberg's Going to the Sun, available on his CD live from Montana at sweetgrassmusic.com.